So we are now on week five of our series on Built on the Humility of Christ. And this is an honest question. I'm not asking this rhetorically. I'm wondering if if you've ever wondered these thoughts in your head. You ever wonder where churches begin to veer off track of humility? It's something that I think about a lot because I know that I am not better than any of those men or any of those churches that have succumbed to pride and to a lack of humility. So what went wrong? What made them think that they had the right to become prideful rather than being reliant on the Spirit of God? Like, like really, how does it happen? I think of my earliest days back when we first started to look to, to, to plant churches and I never sat with my friends and was like, hey guys, you know how we could really inflate our egos and turn into prideful megalomaniacs with messianic complexes and a distorted view of our own self-worth and begin to lose all of our passion for the lost and for Christ and turn it into something mechanical that is absolutely no fun that nobody enjoys? Like, we never had that conversation. I don't think any church has that conversation. And not just planters, but do you ever wonder how it just happens to a church? You join a church because you think, these are some humble, Jesus-loving folk who seem to elevate the Lord's priorities above their own agenda in every way, then there seems to be a shift. All of a sudden, the gospel is not as central. Leaders begin to justify or even excuse their own sins rather than confess them. And the softness that originally attracted you to the place to begin with is replaced with a hardness that is unrecognizable. You're not sure if the decisions being made are even Christian in their nature generically, let alone biblically fueled by going back to the scriptures. How does a church get there? Or do you ever think about it on an individual level? Paul did. That's what the passage is about. He even addressed it in one of the verses that we're going to be looking at. He talks about, he says, with tears, I tell you that there were many who once walked and now they even walk as enemies of the cross. You ever ask yourself, how that happened. I wonder it all the time on so many different levels. I wonder it for myself. I want to be one who finishes the race strong. Do you guys ever think about that? Being somebody who says, I I want to finish this race in such a way where I know that I was not running it purposelessly. I wonder for my loved ones who I've shared the gospel with and they've seen receive it and now walk in a way who's con- that's contrary to the gospel. I've wondered it for churches that I've shepherded. Not everybody who I've pegged as being ones who had finished the race well have been ones who have finished the race well, or at least are running the race well right now. And this passage is interesting because a lot of people who have stepped into pride and hardness, where there used to be humility and softness, can use Scripture to back up their folly But this scripture just strips away all of that where it's all about Jesus. It's like the song says, when all is stripped away 
and I simply come, I'm coming back to the heart of worship. So if you've gotten this far in this series and have not been challenged with respect to humility, as we've looked at the humility of Christ, and we've encouraged you to go deeper into humility, then I would encourage you to press into your heart to see where the disconnect might be. We started with the humility of Christ, and, and that alone... Guys, hear me on this. That alone should be enough to wreck me afresh every time I look at the humility of Christ. If all I had was that passage and the detail of how Christ humbled himself for sinful men, that would be enough to exhort me to humility. I remember, and I tell this story often when I preach that passage, we had just lost a daughter at birth, and we had a son that we, it was a surprise, and, and Marcy was told that she had to be on bed rest. And I remember just having such a selfish attitude. I was like, wow, I, I work all these hours, and I'm going to school trying to get a degree, and I'm a pastor, and then I've got to come home, and I, I've got to do these things. I've got to cook, and I've got to, I've got to clean, and, and this isn't fair, Lord. And I remember reading through that passage about how Christ humbled himself for a wretched sinner like me and how I was unwilling to humble myself for the woman that I love more than anything in the world and for the health of my unborn child. And I remember just sitting there wrecked. Like it's one of those moments that you can still remember where you were sitting. I was sitting on a green chair out in our Florida room just puddled in tears and saying, Lord, where did I get so off track? Where did I get to this point that I'm aggravated with the woman I love because she's getting in the way of me being out there and doing ministry? And I was just crushed. Just looking at the humility of Christ should be enough to recalibrate us. But then we go on to see this famous passage on Christian growth, and the more that Christ-like dependency fuels us, the more Christ just oozes out of us. Then we looked at humble leadership who long to minister to the body with the humility of Christ and come to a, the body in a lowly place to be servants of all. And then we looked at having the humility to keep the main thing the main thing. This week, we're going to look at the humility it takes to keep your eye on the prize. Not wanting to be sidetracked or deviated, even by good things, but ensuring that we remain in a place of God-fueled dependency and humble reliance, because that's what God wants for this church. So the first thing we see about humility here is having the humility to refuse to settle. Look with me, starting at verse 12. We finished off in verse 11 last week, and it says, Not that I have already obtained this, or that I am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. Sometimes a little pronoun can be so important. A lot of the way that you are going to interpret this passage has to do with what you think Paul is referring to when he speaks of the this and the it in verse 12. Well, if you go to the verses in front of it for help, they're talking about being resurrected with Christ someday. And if you go to the verses after it for help with the context, they talk about being made perfect 
in Christ. So when you look at it as a whole within its context, you see that he's dealing with one big topic. He's talking about the perfection that we will receive when we are raised and made new with Jesus Christ someday. That's what the this and that's what the it is talking about. And notice that he says, I have not yet obtained it yet. So what he's saying in simpler language is, I am not perfect like I'm going to be someday when I am with Jesus. And this is such a side point, but maybe if people took a second to remind themselves of that on the daily, the church would be doing so much better in the way it postures itself for humility. I mean, just taking a minute to remind yourself, I am not perfect in any way, and I don't get it in the same way that I'm going to get it when I meet Jesus. I wonder how many church splits or ugly fights that look nothing like Jesus could be completely avoided if people just reminded themselves of this truth and then decided to live in accordance to it. And it sounds like it should be like a no-duh, right? Like, hello, Captain Obvious. Nobody really thinks that they've become perfect. Oh, really? When's the last time that you were a part of a church disagreement where people were fighting for their right to be heard rather than fighting to listen to somebody else and they're insisting that their way is the right way and it's the only way and that you hate Jesus and you're a heretic if you disagree on the color of paint that we should paint the hallway and then you present your view and then the person is like and you know what I'm not perfect, and I'm far from it, and I don't see things as clearly as I will on the day that I meet Jesus. So it's entirely possible that I'm seeing this from a self-centered perspective, and I'm not taking your wisdom into account, and maybe you have a better way of doing things than I do. When's the last time somebody said that to you? I mean, seriously. When's the last time you're just heated with somebody, and they're just like, you know what? We need to just stop, because I'm self-centered. And I'm probably wrong in the way that I'm arguing about this. There's a reason that you rarely hear that. Though nobody would say it, nobody would ever say that they think that they're perfect or that they have the fullness of knowledge that we're going to have after we've been resurrected from the dead. People like to argue that they hold the high ground, especially when it comes to small things, that if you really were perfect, you wouldn't waste your breath even arguing about it because perfect people don't argue about stupid things. I mean, look at the arguments that go on in churches. When's the last time you were at a church meeting and the argument was, man, we're really hashing it out about the language of the hypostatic union of Christ or functional subordination within the Trinitarian Godhead. When's the last time you were at a meeting and they were like, we've got to get this straight, guys. The world hangs in the balance. No, it's usually stuff that holds a lot less eternal weight. And it's just a result of sinners being sinners while refusing to admit that they're sinners. But as a pastor, I'm not interested in how much you've observed it. We could all point fingers at the church, right? And be like, yes, 
they are all wrong and I am better than them. But when is the last time you were passionately arguing for something and then just stopped yourself and was like, look, I'm not perfect. I could have a skewed perspective on this. And since I've not been made perfect yet, maybe my judgments have not been made perfect in this situation yet. So you know what, brother or sister? I humbly defer to you on this one. Can you remember the last time you responded to somebody like that? And I'm going to tell you that if you can't, that's a problem. If you can't remember the last time you humbled yourself and considered the fact that you may be wrong and somebody else may be right, then that is a problem. It shouldn't be like doing calculus in your head to have it come to mind the last time you had a conversation of that ilk. That's how churches remain churches. With Christ at the center is we have the humility to be able to take stock of those things and we let Jesus win. It is good for all of us to remind ourselves, I have not yet become perfect, but I love his perspective that though I'm not perfect yet, I'm also not going to use it as excuse. Look again at verses 12 and 13. He says, I haven't obtained it, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. That's why I said it's so important to define the pronouns of what he means by it. He's saying with regard to perfection, I've not obtained it. I'm not perfect, but I press forward as that as my goal. Well, that's a pretty lofty goal. Where does grace fit into that equation? Does that mean that Paul is suggesting that we will become perfect in this life or that he was some sort of perfectionist or expected you to be? Not at all. That's not where he's going with it. If we could become perfect, we would never need this amazing thing called grace. People who realize just how imperfect they are are more likely to love grace. And guess what? They're also the people that are more inclined to give grace to other people. Just a tangent. I don't trust people who could break down a theology of the doctrines of grace yet refuse to give grace to other people. You are not a trustworthy person if that is the way that you operate. I have sat with Calvinists who could break grace down better than I'll ever be able to break grace down. But every single time somebody offends him, it's like World War II has started and they're ready to fight you tooth and nail. And it's just like, man, you've got such an awesome theology of grace, and guess what? It's never penetrated your heart at all. I don't care. Jesus doesn't care how well you can articulate these doctrines of grace if you yourself have not been impacted by the doctrines of grace to the point where you yourself would give grace to another human being. Amen? And you might be wondering, wouldn't Paul's language seem to negate what you were just saying about realizing that we're not perfect? Not at all. Because listen to this. This is beautiful. The more we become like Christ, the more we realize, man, I have so far to go. You never meet somebody who is holier than the graduate of a Bible college or seminary. 
I mean, they think that they are just so, I've got it all, man. I, I am going to run for Jesus in the next election. And then life sinks in. And they start to follow him. And they're like, Lord, I need grace. I have so far to go. I've never met a truly holy believer who is like, you would not believe how perfect I've been lately. I might just be the next Jesus. I mean, there is not a flaw in the way I live my career. No, the more that you grow closer to him, the more you realize you have so far to go. But guess what? This is the way Jesus operates. It's not condemning, it's compelling when that happens. It's not like I realize it because I'm like, here's Jesus and he's wonderful and I'm terrible. No, I see him and I see that he's infinitely beautiful and I want to be attracted to that which has infinite beauty. Pastorally, I love the fact that he's not willing to use, well, I'm not perfect as an excuse. It drives me nuts when I sit with somebody who's having the same results from indulging in the same sins and the same behavior, and then all you do is question their behavior and say, look, I'm not here to condemn you, but you're in the same situation you've been in for the last, like, 15 years, and you're still doing the same things, so one plus one might equal two over here. And they're like, dude, nobody's perfect. Never said you had to be. I just said, stop, pick a different wall to bang your head against. If you're going to bang your head against the wall, don't let it be the same one every single time. Well, what about grace? What about it? I thank God daily that because of his grace, he covers me and he loves me and he remains intimately with me in spite of the fact that I fail him daily. That's grace. Grace isn't an excuse. Grace compels me. I'm like, wow, every single time I fall, I can call do-over because of grace. That is grace. That is what about grace. I love grace. I pray that we have a church filled with grace junkies. That when people walk in here, they say, grace is in that place. I found the grace of Jesus amongst those people. Man, and in keeping with the theme of humility, I might just point out that this is a much more humble approach because in this approach, God causes the growth and he's the one that gives the grace when we fall short. So whether we excel, it was God. It wasn't us. When we fall short, it's God who gives the grace, not us, not us who work our way back into his approval. Then Paul moves on to our next lesson on humility. Learn by keeping your eyes on the prize. He speaks of the humility to forget what lies behind in order to press forward. Look with me at verses 15 and 16. He says, let those of us who are mature, uh, we'll go back to 14, I press on towards the goal of the call of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those who are mature, actually let's back it up to 13. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. 
I love how Paul leaves it generic when he talks about in order to go forward, he forget what lies behind. There are so many ways you could go with this, even within the context of Philippians. It could mean that he forgets about the fact that he was once a violent aggressor against the church and he refuses to get stuck in that and he will not let his sin define him anymore because he has a new and better word spoken over his life and the grace of God is what defines him and Christ is his identity, not his former identity of being a violent aggressor. So maybe that's what he means, that he forgets what lies behind. Or it could mean that he forgets all the accomplishments that he named at the beginning of chapter 3, like he was um, just referencing, and he's saying, I forget all of them. I count them as nothing, because you know what? They don't give me any merit as I go to the cross. They don't give me a step up on somebody else, and I'm like, I am a Jew amongst Jews, born on the eighth day, circumcised on the eighth day, a Benjamite. There are no steps leading up to the cross, so maybe he's saying, I forget about all of those Things and I come to Christ anew because of the gospel. All of these ways that you can interpret that are true. But we do have the power and beautiful privilege in some ways to forget about the things we did in ignorance before the cross. Is anybody grateful for that today? Uh, I, I'm not saying that there's never any consequences. I'm not saying that the people that we hurt don't matter. But man, I did some terrible things on my way to becoming a Christian. And I'm not saying that I'm perfect since I've become a Christian by any means. But I've done some terrible things that riddled me with guilt. And I regretted those. But I've repaired what I have could. And guess what? I don't have to live there today because of the gospel. Because that's not me. That person that did those terrible things, that never was the true me. The man who is in Christ today is the true me. If you're here today and you have not accepted Christ, let me just suggest that this is one of the things that first attracted me to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of grace, the fact that I didn't have to be defined by my sin any longer. Wherever I went, I was Eric the shot-out drug addict guy, Eric the criminal, Eric the person that you couldn't trust, Eric the thing that just did thing after thing that he regretted. And that's not me. Those things are washed over and they're covered by the blood of Jesus. I am no longer defined by my sin. I'm defined by grace. And if you're here and you're in Christ, your sin doesn't define you. I go and I sit with David Berkowitz on a regular basis, the son of Sam Killer, and guess what? His sin doesn't define him. You know what I see when I walk into him? A brother covered by the blood of Jesus who is walking daily in the grace of God. Even his sin doesn't define him. So if you're here today and you have never accepted Christ, your sin is not too great for the cross to bear and your sin does not have to define you. Christ can define you and his love is that astounding. Amen? Or it could mean, like I said, forgetting our accomplishments because those are not the thing that's going to bring us to closer to Christ. Fresh intimacy is and, and this point is particularly relevant to where we're at in the history of churches coming together, and I'll get out into that more in a minute. But when growing in Christ, hear me on this, please. I know that somebody needs to hear this word this morning. I know that somebody does. So if it's you, make sure that you hear it. 
When growing in Christ, sometimes past accomplishments can be our greatest hindrance when it's what we use to rely upon to excuse present intimacy with Jesus. I've talked to some burned out Christians and they could tell you a list a mile long of things they've done for Jesus, but they are dead and they are crusty and I would never want to be like that person in my life. What is the laundry list of stuff they did for Jesus doing for them now when they're years removed from having any sweetness of fellowship or any softness of Jesus and the best they have is a memory of when they were more intimate. So there's a reality that, that the best way to have fresh intimacy with Christ is to come to him, look fresh, and looking for a fresh interaction, a fresh filling from his spirit, not relying on, I did these things for you so many years ago, Lord. I'll tell you what, those, those past works are not unimportant. The Lord treasures those. When you have this in conjunction with a past record of faithfulness and it's powered by a grace-fueled life, it's beautiful. And that's how you build a legacy. And that's why we started with this series because that's what we, we don't want to build a church. We want to build a legacy here on the Jersey Shore. Amen? Whatever you pick, whatever meaning I laid out to you, doesn't really change the meaning. He means that each time he comes before the cross, he comes as a man made new by the grace of Jesus. He doesn't come with the baggage of what he's done because that's forgiven. How awesome is that? He doesn't come with a list of accomplishments because when we come to the cross, we don't bring our accomplishments, we grab onto Christ's accomplishments on our behalf. He doesn't come with a track record of what he's done perfectly because if you had a track record of what you've done perfectly, you wouldn't be coming to the cross to begin with. The rest of the verse shows that he comes to the cross and he has a renewed vigor and a renewed perspective on pressing forward in Christ. And this is probably, I've picked like five verses that are kind of my theme verse that I continue to come back to as we are in this work of bringing two churches together. And this has been one of the ones that I have held on to so tightly. What are we going to learn from each other? if we've already been made perfect, guys. What are we going to gain if we look at one body or the other and feel as if we've accomplished more? What are we going, how are we going to become a family if we boast on this is the way we used to do it versus this is the way we used to do it? How do you move forward if you refuse to let go of the past? In other words, the one thing I do is I forget what lies behind, and I grab hold of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's way more powerful than clinging to the past. And don't put words into my mouth. I don't want anybody leaving here saying that I said the past doesn't matter. PFC, you guys wheeled around a portable church like we were doing, but you did it for 15 years. And you sacrificed greatly so that we could walk into a beautiful home like this and I could have my own daughter stand up here and say thank you for providing a home like this so that we could have a lock-in because you sacrificed. That matters. Thank you. You have a legacy of people from this church 
who have had children in this church and now who their children have had grandchildren in this church. You have raised three generations of Christians in this church. Thank you. That matters. Remedy. You guys have gone after the lost in this town with a fervor that I've not seen since I've been pastoring in this town. Thank you. I'm proud of you. I got to watch you grow from a backyard barbecue to where we're at today. And I've been seeing most of it happen through people getting saved in our midst. Praise Jesus. That's important. Trinity folks, I've heard story after story about how you have cared for people who are on literally their dying deathbed and you have cared for them with such care and such grace and such dignity. Well done. And that's commendable. Remedy, I can remember when we had five kids on Sundays and we were praying, God, are you ever going to give us a children's ministry? He did. No one is suggesting that you forget any of those things. That's part of God's given legacy to us. He did that work. Not you. Not me. None of us here did that work. That was Jesus. So how dare we forget it or lay it down as if it's unimportant. But as we move forward, we do not move forward by saying things like, this is how we've always done it. Well, this is how we've always done it. Well, here's why you should listen to me, because I've already been made perfect. Here's why none of that matters, guys, because, listen, if you get nothing else in the sermon, get this. We're not trying to recapture what God has done in the past. We are pressing ahead to seek Him for a fresh vision of what He is doing now. Amen? You guys hear me on that? I'm going I'm to repeat it because I, I feel like that should be something that there was hearty agreement on. We are not trying to recapture what God has done in the past. We are pressing ahead and seeking Him for a fresh vision of what He is going to do in the now. And that is so much more powerful. Because guess what? One of them is a story about what God did. The other is a story of, I get to participate in what God is doing. Which is more powerful? Hey, let me tell you back in the 80s when we used to have a cool church. Or, listen, God's in my midst. And I get to sense his manifest presence on a regular basis. And it's so much more powerful. And we're not just looking to blend the parts. Businesses can acquire other businesses and blend the parts to become a bigger business. We want to experience God afresh through the bringing together of new saints, saints that are complementary to one another. Amen? Then Paul goes on to talk about the humility to hold firm to what we've already attained. Um, read with me. Uh, I got... Six more minutes here, worship team. Um, he says, let those of us who are mature think in this way, only, only let us hold true to what we have obtained. That might seem a little bit contradictory to the last point. I was just saying that we need to have the humility to hold things loosely. Now here Paul's saying it's admirable and humble that they held firm and did not loosen their grip. It kind of sounds like they contradict, right? But it does not at all. One of the things you guys are going to hear a lot in this church is the language of open-handed versus closed-handed issues. Closed-handed issues are things like the gospel, the centrality of the cross, the inspiration and fallibility 
of scriptures, biblical manhood and womanhood being taught from the Bible, a biblical understanding of sexual identity. Those are the things that we will hold with a closed hand and we will not relinquish on. But that's not everything. Most things exist here in the open hand, meaning we don't have to have as tight of a grip on these things. We're even free to disagree with one another in Christ. I've found that language to be so helpful because I have seen that division ends up because people take a bunch of things that should be in the open hand and they put it in the closed hand and they become unwilling to bend. Guys, you can't make everything a closed-handed issue. Have you ever been around one of those people that makes everything a closed-handed issue? They're exhausting. If you're one of those people, nobody enjoys being around people like that. I'm going to be the first one to tell you if you don't have the self-awareness to realize it. You're an exhausting human being. But there are certain things that we can have more flexibility on. And it's critical that we define those things or else you lose track of mission and it becomes consumed by the open-handed issues. It's humbling to see my buddy Michael here this morning. We were best friends, and because we didn't agree on the way that the spiritual gifts should be used in the context of worship, we literally broke friendship for like three years and would not even talk to each other. So you want an example of somebody who is just like, if you think I'm calling you out from a high, we wouldn't even talk to each other. The guy was my best friend and had to show up to my wedding uninvited because I took things that were in the open hand and I stuck them in the closed hand and I held them like this. There are some things that we do not bend on, folks. We'd even die for them. Those are the closed-handed issues. But if you're one of those people that makes everything into a closed-handed issue, you might want to take a look at your heart and ask why it is that you do that. Like if things... Like how somebody is dressed, or the key that we sing a song in at church, or the color font that we use on children's ministry signs. If those are closed-handed issues, that's your problem. I want you to hear that. That's nobody else's problem. That's your perception if you make that a closed-handed issue. That means that you care way too much about small things, and people are just going to stop listening to you if that's the way that you operate. It becomes the little boy who cried wolf after a while, and you're probably not going to live a very long life if you act that way. <laughs> Strike that from the recording. <laughs> it, it, it takes humility to hold on to truths that are thousands of years old when the rest of the world says we have to adapt or die. Ironically, those who bend the truth in order to make it more palatable to a changing world think that they're doing so out of humility. When in reality, you can never do something that's more arrogant. Because they think that they get to stand in judgment over the truth rather than submitting under it and that their intellect becomes the sole provider of what is and is not true for me and you. So Paul commends these guys. He's saying you have great humility to be holding on to that which is important. And the final point the last thing that he says about having the humility of keeping your eye on the prize is the humility to being a disciple. Look at verses 17 through the end of the chapter. He says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you've seen in us. Meaning, follow me as a disciple. 
Watch me. Watch the way we walk. Watch others who walk in a similar manner. For many of whom I have told you often and told you now, until even with tears they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and their glory is in their shame with, them, with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Paul tells them to imitate Him and their other leaders as they imitate Jesus. Look, a, a humble person is willing to place themselves under discipleship. And I don't mean information transfer, like you go to a study that stokes more information into your head. A humble person, the chain doesn't stop at them. There is somebody that they are willfully submitting themselves to and placing themselves under. I'll put it as plainly as I can. I don't trust the humility of a man that doesn't have anybody in his life that can say no to him. As I stepped out to plant the church, I went looking everywhere for wise men that I could surround myself with that would tell me no when I was off base because I know that I can be a prideful man and I didn't want to give my pride an opportunity. Well, when Paul talks about having the humility of being a disciple here, look, you can't be a disciple. I just want to break down the word disciple to you if nobody can tell you no. Disciple means apprentice. And I know that we live in a different world where everybody gets a trophy just for participating and we like to tell you all that you're a snowflake and all of that but back in the day you didn't get participation trophies and if you were an apprentice back in the day and you asked the question and you were told no do you know what that word meant it meant no like if you were a plumbing apprentice or an electrical apprentice or a carpenter's apprentice do we have anybody in here that fits those descriptions Remember when you were called the greenie when you first started? And no was probably the, the biggest word that you used to hear. That was part of And if you couldn't handle hearing the word no, like if you got so offended, like how could somebody tell me no? I'm a snowflake. They, they would fire you. And they would go and get a new apprentice. Well, same thing. Discipleship should be synonymous with seeking out authority in your life while seeking to relinquish the authority of your own. So all this talk about humility, guys, I, I just want to break down to you why I picked this topic to close this out. There are a dozen topics that I could have started with. I could have started with why this church needs to be on mission and, and has a, have a missional vision. We could have started with mission, vision, and core values. We could have started with unity as a body. I mean, I could keep going. There's a million topics I could have started with, and they would have been perfectly fine topics. So with there being so many topics, why are we now in our fifth straight week on talking about humility? For two reasons. Because the consequences of disobeying it are great, and the reward for developing a culture of humility is great. Listen to Paul's pastoral heart. He says, I tell you the truth, with many tears, there were people who used to walk just like you and me. They were walking after Jesus, and they're nowhere to be found anymore. Anybody experienced that? Anybody that's been a Christian for a long time have people where you're like, man, I never thought that they were going to be the one that was going to walk to the left or the right. And you're like, where are the people that I started out with? 
Where's the people that I started doing church with? Where are the people that I got saved with? Because they're precious few. And I've only been saved 14 years. I can't imagine you guys who have been saved longer. It's got to be even easier. And Paul says when he thinks about that, it brings him to tears. When is the last time you cried over somebody that you were close with falling away from the truth of the gospel? If you can't cry, that's not a manly thing. I want to tell you that. If you can't cry over the fact that somebody looked like they were walking with Jesus and now they're walking, as Paul says, as an enemy of the cross, if that can't bring something out of the tear ducts, then something's wrong. Because humble people can cry. So why start with weeks of humility? Because it's worth it. Because humble people fix their eyes on the cross. Because if you fix your eyes on the cross, there's no way you're going to walk away from it and become an enemy of it. Humble churches fix their eyes on the cross, and a church that fixes its eyes on the cross is never going to walk away from it. And like I said, the other reason is because the reward is great. In verses 20 through 21, he talks about how we long and we await our citizenship. We gain a citizenship. That's why we started with humility. We gain Christ. Christ is near to the humble. He's opposed to the proud. If we clench our fists against him, you know what we're saying? is We're saying, God, you're not invited here unless it's to judge us. That's what a church that clenches its fist says. A church that opens itself in humility is saying, come, Lord Jesus. Come, be in our midst. Are you here because you want to experience Christ this morning? Do you believe that Christ wants to continue to reveal himself in a greater and greater way to this body? Do you want to believe that church is supposed to be a status quo where every single week we say, you know what, I can predict what's going to happen. It's going to be the same three songs, a 37-minute sermon, and offering the same two songs after that. Or do you want to believe that the Holy Spirit can see a humble people and the presence of Jesus can show up in a church and wreck afresh whatever our lesson plan was for that day? You guys want It takes humility. Jesus doesn't show up in prideful churches in that way and guess what you don't have to fight for position to get there you get there by taking the low place and saying come lord jesus come so as we close our service today we're going to partake of communion we're going to sing some songs that would invite you to just take the low place as we partake and invite christ into our he's here already but ask him show us your manifest presence and glory as we close jesus thank you for this great passage in Philippians. I pray that we would lower ourselves so that Christ could be exalted in our presence. Jesus, we love you. You're an amazing and awesome God. In Jesus' name, amen.